I'm excited about this uh, new sermon series uh, that we're starting today. I got this idea last fall that I wanted to go through the Old Testament and look at some of the lesser known passages of Scripture that refer to Jesus uh, in the Old Testament. Because there's a lot of things that we just kind of skim over and think, oh, that's kind of a cool story, but we really don't know the connection that it has to Jesus and what it means to us. And so we're going to dive into the Old Testament over the next several weeks and see some things that were mentioned about him years and years and years um, before. Uh, I haven't even had Mexican yet today, and that's uh, going to do that already. All right, are we good? Uh, maybe take it out of the monitor. Is it in the monitor? If it's in the monitor, kill that. We might be good. Okay, but anyway, when I see all these prophecies coming to uh, fruition about Jesus, when, when they were predicted hundreds of years before he ever was born and how true they are, it just solidifies my faith. It, 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 not that my faith is weak, but at times it just you know, helps me to see just how true God's word is and how all these things were fulfilled in Jesus. I was reading an article this week about the mathematical probability of Jesus being the promised Messiah. What are the odds of all of these predictions in the Old Testament coming true in one person? And it was a pretty incredible article that only studied eight of the prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament and the probability of those eight prophecies being fulfilled. Now, I'm going to try to fool you and act like I know what I'm talking about as a math person. I'm not a math person. I just read about it, okay? And, and so the probability of this happening is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. And for those of you who are math people, you should be going, wow, right now. Uh, for those of us who are not math people, let me explain that to you just a little bit. That's 1 in 10 with a whole bunch of zeros after, okay? To put it even more in terms that we can understand, let's say that I take a ticket. I've got 10 tickets, and I take one of those 10 tickets, and I mark one of them, and I put them in a hat, and I thoroughly stir those 10 tickets up, and then I ask a blindfolded person to, uh, to reach into the hat and pull out the one ticket that I have Mark, right? He's got a 1 in 10 chance of doing that, okay? Let's take that 1 in 10 to the 17th power. This is what the article says, okay? We take the amount of 1 in 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars. If we have that many silver dollars, we can lay them across the state of Texas, and they'll cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Now imagine on one of those silver dollars, there's a special mark, and you stir up all of these silver dollars two feet deep all over the state of Texas, and you blindfold a person, and you tell them that they can travel as far as they want to go, but they must pick out the one silver dollar correctly that has been marked. That is the chance of one person fulfilling just eight of the prophecies in the Old Testament that were written about Jesus, and yet there are scores and scores of prophecies about Jesus that came to be. God sent his son Jesus to die for you. He sent him into this broken world to give us hope. And would you agree with me that we live in a broken world? And just as these Old Testament prophecies said Jesus would come uh, 
to heal our brokenness. We're, we're going to talk about that some today, uh, and, and uh, we're going to see what that means to us today, because we all agree that the world is pretty broken. We've got religious wars going on. We've got uh, uh, Muslim extremists, and there's Christian extremists, too, that just go out and do silly, silly things. And I think the media has become bored with Muslim extremists because I haven't heard much about it lately. But it's it's just our world is broken. Just a few days ago, a power-hungry leader in Russia invaded the Ukraine against very strong opposition from the rest of the world. Something's broken. There are literally millions of other examples that we could point to, some big, some little, that point to the fact that there's a problem within humanity. People treat each other terribly. Nations go to war. Terrorism impacts every single continent. And then we throw in our own personal struggles and problems on top of that, and sometimes it can be almost overwhelming. Do you ever ask why? You ever wonder where it all started? Why are we in the mess that we're in? Well, today we're going to explore what the Bible has to say about that, where it all started, how even in the Old Testament, Jesus as mentioned as the solution to where it all started. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to skip to a few other places. I'll have those on the screen for you, but primarily we'll be in Genesis chapter 3. And before we go there, I just want to say, you know, we don't, we don't often talk about A lot of our churches, and we don't hear too much, uh, we don't often talk about the enemy of our souls, do we? We don't talk about Satan a lot. And I think the reason why we don't talk about Satan a lot is something that I've noticed is that, um, you know, uh, maybe we have a good intention about warning people about Satan, and he's real, and he is a powerful enemy. But I think sometimes people get a distorted idea of Satan whenever we talk about him too much and how powerful he is. Uh, We need to understand something here today, and this is our first point if you're taking notes. Satan has limited power. He is limited in his power. To keep it simple, if God was a mountain, Satan is a molehill, right? Satan is a defeated foe, but the problem is this. Satan doesn't act like a defeated foe. He keeps going on acting like he's still uh, got a chance to win this war, even though he knows he stands no chance. It's kind of like the Japanese soldiers. You read stories about them who were stationed on islands during World War II. Lines of communication were cut off after the war. And long after the war was over, 25 plus some years after the war was over, some Japanese soldiers are still fighting the war that they think they can win because they, they haven't been communicated with or maybe they just refuse to believe it, whatever the case may be. But in 19 1945, Japan and Germany and all all of those countries surrendered to the allied nations and and, and the war was over. The people kept on fighting, some did, acting like there was still a war going on. They behaved as if the war was still going on. And maybe that's a bit oversimplified, but I think it captures a very key truth. Satan is small, Satan is limited, Satan is defeated, and we win. But we keep acting like maybe we, we haven't, or we don't have a chance to. God is enormous. God is unlimited in his power and glory. And we will be victorious. 
And that's why we spend the, the vast majority of our time talking about God and not so much time talking about Satan because we've got such a big God and there's so much to talk about. But as we're talking about Jesus in the Old Testament today, I think we need to know um, that the enemy works uh, in, in really sneaky ways and he, he's very cunning and he is very crafty, but he has no power over our lives at all. I want to talk a few minutes about learning some about our, our enemy today. And then we'll see how Jesus defeats him and how that was predicted even back as far back as Genesis chapter 3. Christian tradition dating back to the early church fathers links the words of, of Jesus in Luke chapter 10 verse 18 with the earlier words of Isaiah in Ezekiel. And so we see this mirror of the Old Testament and the New Testament coming together. And it's the story about how Jesus has sent out 72 people to heal the sick in Luke chapter 10. And they returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. See, that's a, that's a prophecy that, that Jesus is referring to. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. And then in Isaiah chapter 14, we, we read this beginning in verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. Again, this is Satan saying these things. Of the, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. See, this was Satan's goal. He wanted to appear as much like God as possible. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be above him. And then verse 15 says, but you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. And so Satan is defeated by God. In, 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 we know in Revelation, we read about it in, uh, in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel and Isaiah. And we see all of these different things happening. And we know that God is the victor in all of them. And so we cannot focus our attention on the enemy so much so that we become defeated and we become downcast and we think that we're going to lose. Ezekiel conclude, uh, continues to describe more about Satan. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. This is what he's saying about Lucifer. You were, you were perfect, you were full of wisdom, and, or you were perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the Garden of Eden. Every precious stone adorned you. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were, the, you were on the holy mount of God. And that's, that's some pretty lofty things being said about Satan. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom. See, that's, that's why I try to stay as ugly as possible. I do not want to become conceited with beauty. I don't want to take that chance. All right, just see if you listen. Okay. And, and, and verse 17, your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. That is the verdict concerning Satan. And so 
maybe this helps us some today to move forward in understanding some things about the enemy of our soul and see how Jesus defeated him even before we were here. It's important to note that unlike God who has always existed and who brought everything into being, Satan was created. Okay, God created him. And he's limited. But one of the few tools that Satan has in his toolbox is this capacity to confuse us, to muddle things up, to cloud us, to confuse us, to obscure. I learned a new word this, this week. Obfuscate. Have you heard that word before? I had to look it up. Oh, that's an interesting word. You know, you're the English guy. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Anyway, it means to make unclear, unintelligible, or to bewilder. Obfuscate. Isn't that the way he works? He's always trying to make things unclear for us. He's always trying to make things in Scripture confusing, unintelligible. He's trying to make the things of God bewildering to us so we don't believe this. And he does this in order to raise doubts about God's character and about God's love in our minds. And the first time we see him doing this is in the Garden of Eden. We see this in Genesis chapter 3 during his first appearance. He asks a question that misrepresents God and then he tries to get Adam and Eve to even doubt God. He said, did God really say? Did he really? Did God really say? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. You see, Satan didn't appear like, I'm, I, I don't want to blow anybody's image of what might have happened out of the water, but contrary to what people might think, Satan did not show up with a pitchfork and horns and a tail in the garden and all scary and like, ah, you know. Very beautiful creature, very appealing, and he very cunningly says, did God really say? Verse 1 says that the serpent was the most crafty of the wild animals that God had made. Crafty means subtle, means sly. Immediately in the story of Adam and Eve, he puts Eve in the position of having to defend against a negative statement that is, Satan knows is inaccurate and not what God said at all. But he's, he, this is the way Satan works. He tries to get us to question what God has already said. He's being very insidious. He's being very sneaky here. God's not letting you eat from the tree. In the garden, there's one tree. He's not letting you do that. What, what kind of terrible God is it that would make you starve like that? That wouldn't let you have what you want? And of course, even as Eve defends, God didn't say that. And then Satan kind of has this undertone of accusation. and He's questioning God's character. And I think he does that to us sometimes. If we're not settled on who God is, if we're not settled on the goodness of his love, if we're not settled on his character and who Jesus is, I think we're more susceptible to Satan's tricks. I think we become more gullible and, and Satan is more easily able to raise these questions. And so we have to settle on whether we believe God is who he said he is. And the reality is, Satan is banking on the very fact that there's a lot of people who are not settled on who God is. Satan likes us to sit on the fence. He likes us to be lukewarm and wishy-washy. That's why Jesus said that kind of lifestyle makes him sick because you're easy prey for Satan. Now this is probably something that a lot of us have experienced maybe recently. 
You've maybe had a conversation with someone and someone has said, you know what, I can't believe in a God who allows so much suffering in the world because God is all powerful. How could he let this kind of suffering happen in the world? So either God doesn't exist or he wouldn't allow that to happen or he doesn't care. Either way, I'm not going to worship him because he's not worthy of my worship if that's the kind of God that he is. Maybe you've had that question yourself. The best answer, I think, to this question is called free will. The fact that God did not create us as robots. He gave us the freedom to love him or not. We can choose to do good or we can choose to do evil. We can choose to love or we can choose not to love God. But God's character, I think a lot of times, is thrown into question because of these things that are going on in the world. You know, And if we don't have a sincere, uh, accurate answer, it's going to throw people into doubt and they're going to continue to disbelieve. But what plays out in Genesis chapter 3 is Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve and their fall. So back to, uh, actually we're going to go back to chapter 2 for a moment. God had said to Adam back in chapter 2 that you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. And what Satan is talking about here is a spiritual death. They're dying to the source of life. They're going to be cut off from God, separation from God. And Satan says in direct contradiction to God, to Adam and Eve, he says, you'll certainly not die. (laughs) Come on. God's not like that. He's all loving, remember? Jesus once said this about Satan. John chapter 8, verse 44. He was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so we need to understand this morning that Satan is limited. He's limited to appealing to things that are on the surface. His temptation in our lives are always those things that are on the surface, those shallow things. And I think Satan takes advantage of of things that we struggle with sometimes, and I think sometimes, uh, um, you know, he he gets us to consider doubting our relationship with God. And he gets us to typically focus on the pleasure of the sin. For instance, sexual sin, or getting drunk, or the appeal of drugs to some people. He focuses on the pleasure that would come with doing something like that. And while most people might might not be struggling with those kinds of things, I think our pride is sometimes put to the test or maybe slandering or maybe gossiping against people and he tempts us and he lures us and then when we fall, he accuses us. See, you hypocrite. You say you love God, you don't. Does this sound familiar to anybody? <laughs> we seldom, if ever, think about the fallout of our sin while we're being tempted by Satan. Boy, if we could just stop and think about the, the potential collateral damage that can happen, not just us, but people who are in our lives. But we need to understand something. Satan is limited, but he is the cause of evil. Look at verse 6 in Genesis chapter 3. 
When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? A little while back, Kendall and I went to see someone in our congregation who needed a visit from us, and we went up to the door, and we, we knocked on the door, and no one answered, but the lights were on. We could, we could hear uh, the TV was on. We could see it through their window. The TV was on. It was pretty evident that someone was, was home, and so we knocked again. Still, no one came, and so I thought I'd teach Kendall a lesson since I've been in the ministry a lot longer than he has. I thought I'd teach him a little bit of a lesson, so I took out a business card, and I wrote on the back of my business card, Revelation 3.20. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and open the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him and he with me. And so we walked away from the house. I think Kendall was pretty impressed, really, that I thought of that that quickly. A few days later, my card comes back to me uh, in the mail. It was addressed to Kendall and me both, and the person responded by writing Genesis 3.10, which says, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. <laughs> true story. It's not a true story at all, but it sets up. All right. Here's the deal. At one time, Adam and Eve walked freely in the garden, unafraid, unashamed, and now they're hiding. Adam is hiding. Eve is hiding. And God calls out in the story, Adam has an answer. And it's what I just read for you, Genesis 3.10. I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. At that point, Adam and Eve didn't even know what nakedness was. And so Adam begins his familiar defense. And first he blames God. He says, the woman you put here with me. <laughs> Stop laughing. I know what you're thinking. I'm not going to go there. You can go there if you want. I'm not going there. The woman, here's the deal. He starts saying, the woman, but then he says, that you put here with me. Man, it's one thing to blame your wife. That's not real smart. But it's another thing to blame God, and that's kind of what he's doing. He, he blames the woman first, and then he says, and you put her here. She gave me from the, the fruit from the tree, and I ate it. See, Satan is trying to malign God's character. He starts to plant these seeds of doubt, and he gets Adam and Eve all worked up, and they start fighting with one another pretty much. They start blaming, right? And they planted this doubt, and, and it starts taking root, and they start questioning God, and they start blaming other people for things that are going on in their lives. And often, those people who reject God or who wish to sow doubt also, they accuse God. The argument about God and suffering, that's what this touches on here. Bad things happen to people, to good people, because God allows them to happen. Therefore, God is not good. That's not true at all, but that's what a lot of people are saying. It's an old argument rooted deep uh, in a desire to not take responsibility for our own actions. Isn't that what it all boils down to? Adam blamed God for creating Eve. Seriously? No. 
she gave me the fruit, rather than acknowledge that he did something wrong, he starts blaming Eve. It's that simple. And Eve, you know, she's pretty smart, but she didn't want to shoulder the blame all herself, and so she starts pointing at Satan. Well, so Adam points at Eve, Eve points to Satan, but then Eve kind of more subtly than Adam does says Satan that the snake, the serpent that you created, once again, so Eve starts to blame God for creating the serpent in the first place and allowing it to trick her. Guys, we can't play that game. We have to fess up. We have to own our responsibilities, understand that we are the ones who make choices. We're tempted by Satan, but we make the choice. And what follows is the curse of the serpent by God and then the alienation of the first man and the first woman from God. I've heard it put this way. The man blamed the woman, the woman blamed the snake, and the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Right? So we come back to God's question of Adam, where are you? And I think that's the same question he's asking us today. Where, where are you? You see, God asked this question. He knew where Adam was. Why did he ask it? It's a rhetorical question. He wanted to see if Adam would tell the truth. He gave him a chance to fess up. You ever done that with your kids? Yeah, we have, absolutely. And anytime God asks a question in Scripture, he doesn't, he doesn't need to know the answer. He knows the answer. He just wants to see if you answer it well. It's a reflective question to make you stop and consider. God asked Adam, where are you? Because Adam needed to see himself where he was. And he does that with us too. Adam needed to see that something had changed in his relationship with God. And I think maybe some of us at times need to come to grips with that as well. What's changed? At one time, Adam was completely uninhibited, completely unselfconscious. Is that a word? He was open with God. Now he hides in fear and he hides in shame. Our story, Adam, is hiding in the bushes. He had been walking free in God's world. Now he's hiding in the bushes. And he's shackled by shame. And instead of seeking forgiveness, he hides in his sin. And he thinks up excuses. He does all that he can to avoid admitting that he had done wrong. He blames everyone. Get this, this was funny. He blames everyone who existed at that time. Literally, everyone who existed at that time. He blames the whole world. God, Satan, his wife. He blames everyone but himself. He had known God. He had walked with God. He named the animals with God. He knew his voice. He heard the tone of his voice and recognized it. He knew the character of his voice. But now, both the man and his wife, they hear the sound of his voice. As they're walking through the garden in the cool of the day, but instead of rejoicing that God is coming to talk with them, they hide in shame. Where are you, Adam? Where are you, Eve? And I think he asks that to everyone. Everyone who has lived since that time. We cannot... Claim ignorance of God. Revelation, or Romans 1, 
20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. But though we have no excuse before God, we're sure good at coming up with half-baked reasons as to why we do what we do. And sin entered into the world through one man, Adam, and then that sin separated their relationship with God. Sin was birthed in Adam's heart that day, and yet we find that Adam's sin, the first man, was not just his own. That brought sin into the world. In Romans chapter 5, it tells the story of the fall, and Genesis chapter 3 connects with God's solution to the problem, and this is where we see Jesus in the Old Testament. For those of you who are sitting out there going, wait a minute, I thought this was Jesus in the Old Testament. We haven't even talked about him hardly. Here we go. This is how the message paraphrases this passage of Scripture. You know the story of how Adam landed us in the dilemma we're in. First sin, then death. And no one exempt from either sin or death. That sin disturbed relations with God in everything and everyone. So death, this huge abyss separating us from God, dominated the landscape from Adam to Moses. Even those who didn't sin precisely as Adam did, by disobeying a specific command of God, still had to experience this termination of life, this separation from God. But Adam, who got us into this, also points ahead to the one, capital O, the one, Jesus, who will get us out of it. Yet the rescuing gift is not exactly parallel to the death-dealing sin. If one man's sin put crowds of people at the dead end abyss of separation from God, just think what God's gift poured through one man, Jesus Christ, will do. There's no comparison between that death-dealing sin and this generous life-giving gift. The verdict on that one sin was the death sentence. The verdict on the many sins that followed was this wonderful life sentence. If death got the upper hand through one man's wrongdoing, can you imagine the breathtaking recovery life makes? Sovereign life in those who grasp with both hands this wildly extravagant life gift, this grand setting, everything right that the one man Jesus Christ provides. Here it is in a nutshell. Just as one person did it wrong, Adam, and got us in all this trouble with sin and death, Another person, Jesus, did it right and got us out of it. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong, but one man said yes to God and put many in the right. All that passing laws against sin did was produce more lawbreakers, but sin didn't and doesn't have a chance in competition with the aggressive forgiveness we call grace. When it's sin versus grace, grace wins hands down. Or as Matthew West would say, grace wins every time. All sin can do is threaten us with death, and that's the end of it. Grace, because God is putting everything together again through the Messiah, invites us into life, a life that goes on and on and on, world without end. And so the question for all of us here today is this. It's not, have I sinned? because we know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The question is not that. The question is, what do I do about it? Where am I? What can be done about my sin? 
because all of eternity hangs in the balance of that answer. If your answer is, well, you know what, I'm going to try to do more good than bad, and, and you know, if my good outweighs my bad on the scales of heaven, then, then yay, I'm in. If that's what you're banking on, you're in trouble. That's not the way it works. We're either in Christ and trusting for what He did on the cross, that He bore the penalty for our sins, that just like through Adam came death, through Jesus came life. That's why Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. Adam blew it, Jesus came, He didn't blow it. Verse 15 of Genesis 3 says this, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And He will crush your head, and you will strike His heel. This is a direct prophecy about what was going to happen at Calvary. It was a declaration of war, really, between God and Satan. God was saying that even though Satan has deceived all of humanity, one day at Calvary, everything is going to be made right. God said, I know that Satan is going to strike his heel. And he did. He struck his heel. It was a powerful blow, really. He killed the Son of God. Jesus went to the cross and he was sacrificed. He was tortured. He was mutilated on our behalf. And Satan really struck a blow to Jesus. But God crushed the head of Satan by overpowering death and the grave and Jesus through his only Son. That's what that passage of Scripture means. And I don't know if you've ever looked at Genesis 3.15 as a messianic prophecy before or not, but when you do, it changes everything. Just as sin came into the world through one man, sin can be beaten by one man. Jesus Christ, who went to the cross and died for you and didn't stay dead. So when God calls your name, He says, where are you? Are you walking with him? Are you trusting in his grace? Are you believing in his promises? Are you embracing the cross of Christ? I hope so. If not, we want to give you the chance to do that. I'm going to have our worship team come back up here, and we're going to sing a song of decision this morning. And if you have a, a need, uh, we encourage you to come. Um, if you're here and... Uh, you need to make a decision to follow Christ. We, we encourage you to come to the front. Kendall will be down here at the front to meet you, pray with you, talk to you about what you need to do, your next steps. Um, if you're watching online and, and uh, maybe you need to make a decision, would you text the word READY to our church connection number? And uh, we'd love to reach out to you and talk to you about what you need to do this gift of salvation through the second Adam, Jesus. As our children are coming back in from Children's Church, um, uh, it's, it's so awesome to see them. They're coming back in because a baptism is going to happen this morning, and we want the kids to see that. But I just want to give a shout-out to what happened here. Um, and this is just a shout-out to God for what happened here this last week. Twenty-four 
kids at Columbus Christian School during a one-day conference here called One Real Day. 24 kids came forward and confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Twenty-four kids in one day. It's pretty awesome. One of those uh, is following that up with baptism today. And maybe uh, you're here and it's a decision you need to make today as well. Um, whatever it is, um, I'm going to ask you to stand. Maybe it's a first-time decision. Maybe it's a decision to uh, just answer God when he says, where are you? Say, here I am, God. And I'm ready to obey you and follow you for you. Um, but as we sing, if you have a decision, uh, we encourage you to sing.